Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to Second Captains Live. Owen, Ken and Murph all here and all wishing you a happy new year. Happy new year, folks. A happy very new happy new year, everyone. The, uh, and to you two as well. I don't want to forget you two either. Thanks, Kieran. Have a great 2015, you two guys. I know what it's like around this time of year. You're just checking in with your regular podcast, see if they're putting out shows, uh, given the time of year that's in it. Bad news for you, Ken. Serial's finished up for the time being, so you have to make do with the Irish Times Second Campus podcast. Yeah. I actually, I couldn't get into Serial, to be honest. Oh, I thought I'm, you were. I thought you had. I mean, I tried. I listened to a few episodes of I mean, I, I, it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm slagging them off here. Yeah. I just want to say that Owen McDevitt loves Serial. Me... Couldn't quite get into it. Just oh, found after a few episodes, I really don't care. <laughs> I just can't quite bring myself to care who did what. I just don't. That's amazing because I, I, don't I, care. I, I thought the issue might be for uh, people who don't like it. The, the, actually, the first couple of episodes, I thought once you listen to two or three, mm. you're so connected with the characters and you enjoy Sarah Koenig storytelling. No, uh, so I mean, sir. Then just watch through that. Now it did. It, it come on. Let's be fair. It, it it's quality veered up and down in the later episodes. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Sarah Kaney didn't really know what was going on. Sarah Kaney uh, unleashed a, a media phenomenon. Um, she finally managed to do a podcast properly. <laughs> Somebody was going to have to do it, and she did it. I've just got to say, in, in this particular instance, it, it wasn't my thing. But you know, I don't mean to say that's to sound like. Uh, you know, sour grapes. We don't want to go rushing headlong into 2015 here. So today's show is a pick of a couple of our favourite interviews during 2014. One of which is the great Michael Parkinson. This is a chat we wanted to make happen for quite a while, a couple of years, really. Parky's best known, obviously, for being one of the great interviewers and chat show hosts. But he began his life as a sports writer in Barnsley in the 1950s. And that's the part of his career that we're going to focus on today that we did focus on with him. We chatted to him a couple of months back. First up, it's going to be David Badil, Ken. This one we both enjoyed also, but enjoyed quite a lot. Yeah, David Beale, um I can't remember when it was we spoke to him on. Was it around March, maybe? Um, it was a few, few It months. was actually late July, uh, early August, Ken. Okay? Late July, early <laughs> August. Uh, uh, it, it, had a, it had a timeless quality, yeah, don't, worry, don't worry about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he was a guy who, who um, was an originator in terms of football on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the Sarah Koenig of his time. 
to Sarah, to Sarah Koenig. He was he was a mold breaker. He's also a Chelsea supporter. He's remained a Chelsea supporter even as uh, even as that club has changed in its fundamental nature and become uh, fueled by uh, Siberian petrodollars. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things I think we wanted to to talk to him about. Has he ever sort of lain awake at night thinking? Can I still be a Chelsea supporter, considering all you know? He's a he's a guy who's a, who's aware of the the issues surrounding it. You know, does being a fan simply trump all of those kind of considerations? Here's our chat with David Padilla. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I'm delighted to welcome David Badil to the show. David, thanks very much for chatting to us, first of all. Hello, my pleasure. I'm actually looking at your website at the moment, uh, and I can see both uh, Owen and Ken on your website dressed in what looked like 70s football clothes yep. uh, on cigarette cards. Yeah, guilty as charged. It's helpful to me because I need to know what you look like, I think, uh, although I hadn't expected you to look exactly like this. That is actually all my own hair. David. Is it really? Yeah, the bits that are left there, it's, it's, it's all it still mine. It's a tiny bit like Ralph Coates. I don't know if you remember Ralph Coates. <laughs> he, had, he was one of the first ball, properly bald footballers, uh, but he always, as footballers used to in those days, he used to keep a comb over as well. Uh, although you've got the tash. Okay, is that a real tash? No, but, no, that's, that's, that's not mine. That's yak hair. <laughs> well, it looks great. Yeah, almost everything there is fake on me, David, oh. so that's why I have to, have to move it on. Listen, you, you met um, Josie Mourinho recently and interviewed him, a man mm. you describe as your saviour in football mm. terms as a yeah. Chelsea fan. Did he make a positive impression? Um, well, uh, it was very nerve-wracking for me because uh, he's a very, very important man now. And so uh, I'm not suggesting he was, wasn't before, but he's become more and more important. And uh, I only had 15 minutes to talk to him, and uh, I've been told by the Radio Times, who I was doing the interview with, that they didn't really want me to talk about football. After I said yes, because they said, do you want to interview Jose Mourinho? And obviously I said yes, because I'm a Chelsea fan. Um, and I, I do love Jose Mourinho. He very much, in my mind, was the person who finally transformed Chelsea, who had been a team I'd supported for many years, uh, through quite a lot of drudgery, through quite a lot of them being in the second division, through quite a lot of false starts in the 90s, to sub- properly being you know, a league-winning uh, side to being a premiership winning side uh, so I was very excited uh, and then they said you can't talk about football so I thought well why did I bother uh, so in the end of course I did talk about football but in quite a sort of generalised way because the Radio Times is not a sporting magazine yeah. so I talked to him about you know what it is that makes him a winner and here's the thing I feel that when Mourinho for, Mourinho gets a bad rap I think he has this idea that he's a guy who just wins ugly who doesn't care about the beautiful game. He just wants to win and he'll park the bus wherever or, and he'll use all sorts of psychological tactics. Because I remember when he first came to Chelsea, we were playing the most brilliant attacking football. We were suddenly winning games 4-1, 4-0, 5-0. You know, we really became a brilliant attacking side. And then it seized up a bit around about the time that you know things started to go wrong between him and Abramovich. But, so anyway... Uh, I'm going on a bit, guys. Do it. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> fine. Yeah. yeah, this is one of my favourite subjects. So anyway, so I said to him, "It's not true, is it, Jose? You do love the beautiful game. You must love football beyond just winning." And he said, "No, I just like winning." Essentially, mm. <laughs> he said, "I don't think football has any kind of football isn't football unless basically it's about competitiveness and winning." Um, and so I didn't really get that sort of softer. No, I am an artist side out of him. He is. Very, very focused on winning. Did you, yeah, can I just say one more thing about yeah, him? Yeah. I know I'm going on. But and we're going we're gonna to keep asking about him, don't okay, worry. He, he also said, uh, he started talking about, I said to him that Frank Lampard once told me that he loved Mourinho. And I said, how do you inspire this new player? And he started talking about Kaká. And when Kaká was at Real Madrid, 
um, when Marina was there. Um, Marina didn't like him uh, and decided not to play him, even though he cost Real Madrid 69 million euros, I think. Um, and despite this, he told me this story that Kaká had been speaking to uh, Luis, Felipe Luis, that new Brazilian player we've got, uh, and had said to him, you should go there, Mourinho's a brilliant manager. And Mourinho said this to me, and he said, I love that, basically, because it shows that even though, you know, Kaká and I didn't get on, he realises <laughs> that I'm a good manager. Did you believe the story? Well, I didn't really believe it. What I took from it is that Mourinho is someone who just doesn't admit that anything's ever gone wrong in his life. Because it went wrong with Kaká. You know, they, he was the most expensive player in the world at the time. Uh, and, you know, it was a big mistake, some would say, that he didn't get him to work at Real Madrid. But, but Mourinho, in a very Mourinho way, has now transformed that story to not demonstrate that he screwed up, but that even with players who he didn't get on with, they will come to realise that he's a great manager. Did so you... I think it's all about confidence in Mourinho. He's an incredibly confident bloke. Yeah, did you find something chilling about that kind of sense of destiny? A little bit. He's a, a, he's a fanatic, essentially. Bit. There's an element of hired assassin, very confident hired assassin to him, uh, that he will, you know, you know the way that you imagine in, a, in those kind of like films that the hired assassin never questions what he does. That there's a sort of, that, you know, that's what makes him the great. There's got an element of that to him that you can't, I, I put this other thing to him, I said, you know, when Brian Clough was, a, you know, one reason why he became a great manager, in my opinion, Brian Clough, was that he was a very good player who then got injured when he was 26. And that fire of, un, of stuff unachieved maybe is what made him a great manager. And I said to Mourinho, maybe with you, it's because you never achieved that much as a player. And he wouldn't have that. He said, no, no, I knew I wasn't a good player. I tried to be a player, yes, because, you know, I was a kid, so I wanted to be a player. But I, wasn't a bo- I realized I wasn't very good very quickly. And so I decided, no, I am to be a manager. And I thought, well, again, this is someone who won't admit the possibility of of the negative in his life. I remember his great friend, Sir Alex Ferguson. Well, I don't know if they're still friends, but they, they, they certainly always used to pretend to be friends. And then yeah. Ferguson chose David Moyes. Um, but he said uh, at one point when he was sort of, um, he, he always spoke quite well of Mourinho when they were actually rivals, managing against and he said, he brings a great humour to it. Now, mm. Ferguson himself is a famously humourless man. Mm. Uh, do you think Jose Mourinho is actually funny? Isn't it? I, mean, I mean, I don't wish to sound. This is going to come across as a bit xenophobic, but he is Portuguese, right? <laughs> and I don't know what their record is like with comedy. Um, I mean, he certainly says things in a way that you know when he's asked stupid questions or questions that he deems to be stupid, Mourinho often bats them away with a kind of lofty, amused thing. Uh, and so I think maybe you know he does have a sense of humour. Actually, my brother Ivor Badil, who's a comedy writer, worked with him on uh, that UNICEF. Thing, what's it? What is it that they do at Old Trafford? Uh, what is that thing where celebrities play in a team? Oh yes, what's uh, that called? <laughs> is that the thing Boris Johnson was in? Where yeah, he, that thing yeah. that Boris Johnson was in. It's called something Soccer Aid. Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah. So Soccer Aid. So Mourinho managed the um, celebrity team, I think, or the rest of the world team this year. Uh, and actually, he went on the pitch at one stage and, and tackled someone. Did you see that? I hadn't seen that, no. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That was a bit of proper visual comedy. The manager suddenly coming off of the touchline and tackling someone. It wasn't quite out with Boris Johnson's rugby tackle, <laughs> but it was still pretty funny. I because he certainly gets, yeah, he certainly gets journalists laughing quite a lot and it seems to have the media eating out of the palm of his hand, which yeah, is maybe yeah. a different thing than being genuinely funny. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would... If, if he became a stand-up, I don't think I'd rush to his gigs, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, 
as far as football management goes, and certainly foreign football management, I think he's you know reasonably he's got a kind of wry, raised eyebrow thing going on, which I, I'm going to say is funny. Is it is it a sign of the way that football has changed that that a man like Mourinho, who maybe in in times past would have become I don't know, possibly an actor or, or maybe a, a cruel colonel in the Portuguese <laughs> army, is, yeah. is now drawn to make his career in the game without it being considered a waste of his talent. It isn't a waste of his talent, let's be honest. He's a very, very successful manager. Uh, he is you know, uh, the most successful manager in the world, arguably. Um, I don't think, you know, but I agree with you that he's not your obvious manager mould. I, I mean... Sorry, I don't go on about this piece, but you, you, you mentioned it at the start. In this piece I wrote, I also said that British managers seem to me to not really have changed character-wise since, like, the 70s. You know, the, since when I was growing up, a manager was basically like... Uh, Malky you know, Mackay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe not as bad as that. <laughs> but, yeah, like the bloke who manages Melchester Rovers in Viz. Uh, you know, they wear sheepskin coats and they are resolutely blokey, working class, look like they always drink 15 pints a night uh, and are not interested in, in, you know, clothes or basically charisma or anything that might imply, you know, any kind of sex appeal. Uh, you know, they, they, they basically, um, you know, I can't think of a British manager, whether it's, whether it's Harry Redknapp or Sam Allardyce, or David Moyes, whoever it is, who wouldn't have looked exactly like they do now in 1953. Then suddenly, you know, whenever it was that Joseph Bengloss appeared, we had this thing where foreign managers could be quite academic and professorial. And then you've got Wenger, obviously. But they, too, they were not, the last thing they were was sexy. And then that's what Mourinho's done. That's why he's so commercially successful as an icon to some extent. He's introduced this idea that you can be a football manager of all things and be kind of sexy. And I think that's, you know, done very well for him as a brand. When did your own relationship with Chelsea begin, David? Uh, well, it began uh, when they won the FA Cup in 1970, which I was watching on the telly when I was six, on a black and white telly. And my brother, who I've mentioned already, but he's, he's key in my football life because he was 18 months older than me. And he, I just did what he did when I was a kid. I don't know if you've got an older brother, but that's what you do when you're six. And I remember him being excited that Chelsea had won uh, in the replay and beaten Leeds. And so I just started supporting them there. We didn't live near Chelsea. We lived uh, in a place called Dollis Hill in North London, which isn't really near any football grounds, but probably a bit near Arsenal. Um, and then when I was old enough to go, see, that, well, that was one of the things why I think I think of, of Jose as my saviour, because Chelsea had a great team then, a very fancy Dan team. They had Osgood, they had... Uh, you know, they had Alan Hudson, they had Eddie Gray. No, they never Eddie Gray. They had Charlie Cook. Eddie Gray played for Leeds. Uh, but they had a lot of really brilliant players. Peter Bonetti, you know, really good players. And then by the time I was old enough to go, which was sort of 1975, 76, they didn't have any of those players. They'd all left or got too old. And they had players like Mickey Droy, who you may or may not remember. But he, <laughs> Mickey Droy, God love him, was not a player that you would romanticise about. So then for about, you know, 25 seasons they carried on being essentially quite a mediocre side uh, and all that romance didn't come back until the late 90s, which actually was when Hoddle started managing Chelsea and that's when they started to go back to being kind of a flair side. They are said to have an anti-Semitic element in their support. Did you ever come across that? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Well, the thing that I've got a lot of 
heat here over the last couple of years for doing, which you may or may not be aware of, but I started a campaign with Kick Racing Out of Football to try and uh, encourage fans not to use the word yid yeah, uh, yeah. in football on the, on the terraces. And that's been m- widely mistaken, uh, not least by Tottenham fans as being a huge attack on Tottenham fans. It isn't, actually. I mean, although Tottenham fans are important in the equation, it was completely about being a Chelsea fan because I've put up with years and years and years of Chelsea fans chanting that word with lots and lots of anti-Semitic add-ons at Tottenham fans, but also at Israeli teams. Uh, I remember us playing Maccabi Haifa and them chanting that word. Uh, if any player even... The, the time I actually started it was... You know, me and my brother had put up with it for years, and then one time, I think, we were playing Aston Villa, and we heard that uh, Spurs... On the, we're losing to Hull, I think it was. It came up on the scoreboard. And suddenly, lots of the crowd start chanting, Yido, Yido, over again. And then a bloke, a bloke behind us, who'd never noticed him there before, starts going, fuck the Yids, fuck the fucking Yids, over and over again. And then, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, over and over again. And, I don't, you know, you probably do know this, but in, in England, there's meant to be a zero-tolerance culture to racism. Yeah. On the terraces, no one does anything. Well, how, how does everyone react? I mean, is, are no, people no just giving sidelong I mean, dances or so? No one, you know, there's a certain freezing of the air, but no stewards come over and remove him and ban him from the ground, as would happen if he'd used any other type of, type of racist language. Just nothing happens until my brother, who is very, very slightly harder than me. My brother looks like me with a stocking over my head. <laughs> so he's slightly harder than me. He gets up and tells his bloke to shut up. And for about a second, it looks like there's going to be a fight, but then the bloke shuts up. And my brother sits down and he says to me, I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> and uh, as a result of that, we decided, me and my brother, to go to kick racing out of football and try and create a film about that, which took a long time to get done with a lot of opposition uh, from people. But eventually what happened was actually a key element of that was that Gary Lineker decided that he would appear in that film. It's called The Y Word, and you can see it online with an awful lot of hate underneath it um, from the online comments. But Gary Lineker said that he would do it. And when Gary Lineker said he would do it, then Frank Lampard said he would do it. And then Ledley King did it and, and a number of other footballers. Uh, and so we managed to get it made. But it's been much misunderstood, really, because yeah. really it's not about Tottenham. It's about a sort of uh, a London-wide, really. It's really about London-wide kind of problem where West Ham and Arsenal and Chelsea are all involved in anti-Semitic abuse that, that centres around that word. It's pretty impressive to get current footballers to speak about those kind of issues. Did you? What sort of an impact? You said there's a lot of hate below it, and there's. Uh, if, you, if you go and look at the Y word online, I mean, I don't generally, but if you do, uh, I think you'll find that there's an incredible amount of abuse and hate. Uh, uh, yeah, as a result. So, of did it. but did it, did it? Was it worth taking that? I mean, did it achieve close yeah, to well, what I you hoped it, it would I, achieve? Who knows? I I feel at Chelsea there is less anti-Semitic stuff on terrorism than they used to be um, and I certainly even when we play Tottenham I hear the word uh, what we call the Y word uh, chanted less than I used to um, and I'm just glad we raised awareness of it because that's what we're really, really trying to do is raise awareness and to say look we are constantly being told about racist abuse of other sorts on the terraces I, I've been going to a club for 30 years where I hear this regularly and no one seems to even sort of acknowledge that it happened so we raised awareness of it so in that sense I think it did achieve something. At Chelsea FC a very different club from the one that you started going to I mean as you were, as you were saying there was about yeah. 25 seasons of um, 
not great. And then um, Roman Abramovich comes. I mean, Abramovich is such a strange figure, really. I mean, you know, maybe the most powerful individual uh, in English football or certainly close to it. Um, almost nothing is known about him, has never uh, spoken about anything, has this vast fortune of, mm. uh, in, that the, in the most generous possible terms, somewhat dubious providence, mm. which nobody ever asks any questions about. What were your own feelings when Abramovich came and, and took over? Because it was immediately obvious at, at, the, at the moment, on the, on the very day that it happened, that this was completely going to change Chelsea mm. forever. That he, he, yeah. he had so much money that it had completely turned English football on its head. Did mm. you, what were your feelings at, at that point? Well, I think he'd been sort of superseded now. I'm not, I don't mean in necessarily financial terms, but just in sort of that idea of the takeover of the club by a rich individual, people like Vincent Tan and whatever seem to be, to be more colourful in the way that they've done that. And it's, you know, um, and therefore it's sort of eclipsed. It's these sort of field, and, you know, and actually they've tried to balance the books recently, Chelsea. It hasn't just been about buying, buying, buying. So it's slightly not what it was. But when he first came, there was no question that, you know, it was like a cartoon strip in which a secret millionaire, uh, you know, gives the poor people some money and it changes their lives. Uh, it was clear that this was going to completely transform Chelsea. And it would be a lie, a complete lie, of me to pretend that I somehow thought that was there was a negative in that. I didn't. I thought this is brilliant. I mean, that I, I have met Chelsea fans, uh, the sort of football fans who are slightly masochistic, who, who say, oh, I sort of prefer it like it was in the old days when we were shit and, you know, we never won anything. But, I, no, I, I was reared on Chelsea being, um, you know, a club, A, that won some things, because we won the FA Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup when I first started supporting them, but also that, that had some brilliant players, you know. And so the fact that we could suddenly start buying brilliant players really felt to me like the destiny that I'd always been looking for in this club. Uh, I mean, which is not to say, I think, obviously there's been all sorts of things that have been complicated and odd about that regime at Chelsea. Um, and also, you know, sometimes we, we haven't um, been the, the, you know, the fabulously entertaining flair side that I thought we might be when Abramovich started doing that. And I think, actually, I think that's what he wants. I think Abramovich has always wanted a, a kind of side of Galacticos that play amazing football that's sort of like Barcelona were uh, certainly a couple of seasons ago and, and that kind of stuff but he's never quite found the manager who will do that for him I think um, so anyway my point is I do like Abramovich you've no I issues. have met him by the way you have I've met him. yeah I met him uh, actually once at the um, at the Champions League final uh, I met him once at Man United uh, when we played Man United I, I, I met him there and then I, I saw him uh, when I was in Munich uh, for the, when we won the Champions League uh, and I sort of having met him once before tried to say hello but you motion towards Abramovich in a room and five very frightening Russian people surround you so I, I moved away. How was the first interaction did you chat to him for long? The first interaction I said hello but I, I don't think at that point it was quite early on I think he doesn't speak English or didn't speak English then or he's so shy which I think he is he was like frightened of me because I was a bit hairy or something. I don't know why, uh, but he just looked at me blankly, and I said hello, and didn't really get a response. And I walked away. I remember uh, Matthew. I tell you what, yeah. that's just one thing about him. When I met him the first time, I thought, "Blimey, 
he's got a lot of money, but he dresses really badly. <laughs> he was wearing what appeared to be my dad's wind cheater. That he used to, you know, the sort of thing that my dad would wear in the car when he hadn't been bothered to put anything on. He was wearing that and a pair of slacks. I remember, so, yeah. I remember when Sky Sports News were doing a piece about him a year or two back with Tony Cascarino, and I think it was Matthew Syed of the Times. Yeah. Uh, Cascarino was there to do a puff piece on Roman Abramovich, not reckoning on Matthew Syed's uh, journalistic integrity taking over, and uh, there followed a very entertaining conversation where Syed's exploring the, the dubious... Uh, wealth that he's garnered and Cascarino looked like looked absolutely gobsmacked that he was involved in this conversation but uh, you said that this, you've no problems with that this is the way football has gone it's not well, just I, Abramovich I, I mean you know, in terms of the provenance of his wealth you know I, I, I'm sure I would have a problem with it I don't have a problem with it in terms of like you know what he's doing for the club in terms of uh, you know how he got that money I don't know how he got that money and I'm sure it's dubious but show me the oligarch that got his money through the sweat of his brow and fair dealing, uh, you know, I don't think, I think those people who have that kind of money, you know, it's all weird and dodgy and whatever. Um, so, yeah, sorry, carry on. You say, but no, you saying like you're still very much in love with the game. You talk to people uh, who, we interviewed Michael Parkinson not so long ago and he'd been a big football man for a long time back in the day and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he very much... Um, got fed up with it. Maybe those are guys who grew up in the 50s and 60s. I, I don't know. But Des Lynham also has spoken recently about how it's not it's an alien game to them now. Uh, I'm not trying to put you in that in that age bracket by any <laughs> yeah, means, David, but I'm just, uh, I'm just Why wondering. Why do you like Michael Paul? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think people, I don't know about Des, uh, but I think Michael Parkinson has become a bit of a grumpy old man. Um, and I think, you know, this is a really obvious and banal thing to say, but there is not an era, certainly in sport, uh, where people don't start saying, well, things are much better, of course, 20 years ago. Uh, that is what people say. Uh, and to some extent, that is because their youth was 20 years ago. And so things look better. Uh, but I think that there is no... Obviously, football has become a much more corporate entity. i tell you the way you can really tell that. During the World Cup, I noticed that Vauxhall... Um, had um, managed to get, I mean, I'm probably not the first people to do this, but the first time I noticed it, to get their logo printed on the collar of various shirts. So Roy Hodgson's collar would have Vox on it. And I thought, ah, that's because they know that if there's a close-up of Roy Hodgson, you won't see the badge if it's on his chest area of Vauxhall. So they've got it on the collar, right? And someone has thought about that and forced that in the contract with Roy Hodgson or England that they, every time they have to wear these shirts, which they have to for every interview, you have to have it on the collar as well. And that is not something that you would have seen happening, you know, with Don Revy. Um, and it is, so it is definitely true, obviously, that it's become a much more corporate entity. It's kind of mad when you see people interviewed now, and there's so many logos behind them and all the rest of it. And it's mad how much it costs, and obviously it's completely mad what they get paid. Mm. Nonetheless, and this is, I think, the thing about sport, which is, I think, in a way, what, when, when I was first asked to do so, you, know, you were going to talk kind of, about what it is about sport. That's one of the things about sport, which is uniquely amongst sort of modern, the modern times. I think that sport can manage when it's great, which it often isn't, but when it is great, to rise above all the shit. And there's lots of shit accumulating at, uh, around sport at the moment, more than there was years ago. But still, there's something about sport that when you lose yourself in it, none of that matters. None, who cares? about any of that stuff. Who cares that Roy Hodgson has to wear a shirt with Vauxhall on it? If England were winning, which of course they're not, but if they were, it, it wouldn't matter. 
you know what I mean? Sport, yeah. sport I think, retains its purity somehow um, in a way that lots of nothing else really does, I think. I, yeah. can think of. I mean, one of the best examples of it that I can actually think of is that Champions League final you mentioned, the 2012 uh, Chelsea against Bayern, where you've got this, um, okay, oligarchs play thing, they're advertising... Uh, who was it at the time? I suppose the the airline from the from the Arab oil state, um, and you know you can kind of think all these things, uh, but at the end of it, they were just eleven guys up against eleven other guys in a hostile stadium, and you see yeah. that the way that guys like Lampard and Drogba and Juan Mata played that night, and you think um, you kind of all the other stuff falls away. In a well, sense. even in the World Cup, I thought. I mean, you know, the World Cup ridiculously over. Commercialise, and there's all sorts of ways in which FIFA, who were very corrupt, as we know, you know, screw it up and all that stuff. But you'd have to be such a puritan not to think, yeah, but there was some brilliant football. And when there was brilliant football, you know, then uh, you don't care. And I'll compare it if I could compare it to music, right? Music is fucked, I think. I mean, you, people will still make good music, but you know, to go to do the thing of things were better when I was growing up. There was David Bowie, right? Now there will never be anyone like David Bowie ever again, I think, because the economics of music are fucked and the cultural position of music in our life is fucked. And so therefore you, you just no one will ever emerge like that who you worship virtually like a god and what and his you know, talent is virtually supernatural because I just I might be wrong. You're not a I, Bruno Mars fan? You know, <laughs> hey Bruno Mars, he writes a nice tune. But do you know what I mean? I, I cannot imagine David Bowie or Neil Young or the Beatles or whatever. I can't imagine any musician, pop musician, having that kind of cultural impact again. But isn't it really just imagine, because it's I can imagine yeah. there being footballers who are as great as the footballers that we've seen before. There will still be great footballers and great football matches, just as great as we've seen before. You mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago all the, the shit you said that's acu- that accumulates around the game. I guess one aspect of that is the, is the kind of coverage of the game, mm. um, which has exploded uh, hugely over the last 20 years. Mm. Um, and so the way football has talked to it has changed quite radically. Maybe you were kind of at the forefront of that change in the 1990s with the TV show with Frank Skinner. Mm. Uh, do, you, do you sometimes look upon the, uh, the current uh, media landscape that surrounds the game and think, what did I do? No, I don't, no. I mean, partly because, I mean, fantasy football has been tried. You know, in, uh, I mean, I'm aware of it, uh, like pilot stage, but also beyond, you know, like that uh, James Corden show. And, you know, there's, there's been mm. loads and loads of attempts to replicate fantasy football, and it's never happened. It's never really worked. And I think that's because, you know, it was partly to do with a particular time, but it was also partly to do with a particular chemistry between me and Frank and a particular reality to how we felt about football that they haven't been able to find, I think, again. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think that, there ha- you know, it did shift a bit in terms of, you know, not being so formal about the game. And, and interesting enough, I saw that match of the day thing. I don't know if you saw that. It was a match, 50 years of match of the day. Yeah. And Adrian Childs was on that talking about match of the day too and slightly pissed me off by saying that, oh, well, I think match of the day too, it came about because we thought let's do football that's a bit like Top Gear. And I thought, no, it came about because of fantasy football. That's why you've got that slightly jokey, slightly, you know, sitting around just with your mates feel to match the day too. Um, but I don't, I mean, I would say that the huge media explosion around football is not to do with fantasy football, it's to do with money. It's to do with Sky and it's to do with money and it's to do with, you know, the fact that people think, well, 
how can we certainly get an audience? We'll do another program or another show or more coverage about football. Um, and, you know, in fantasy football's defence, it was very not that in feel. It was like a cottage industry way of looking at football. You know, it's all about let's, let's take you back to just sitting around with your mates with some drinks, watching football and making jokes about the footballers. What, how did that idea come about in the first place? If Match Day 2 years later came about as a result of Fantasy Football League. What, what did you guys base it on? Well, we didn't base it on anything because I try very hard um, when I'm having ideas, and not always successfully, but uh, to do stuff that hasn't been done before. I, I'm really keen on trying to create stuff that's new. Uh, it came about because um, Fantasy Football as a game was quite current in the early 90s, and I was playing it on a radio show that used to have as a section of it, you know, a little fancy football league, but it wasn't a comedy show, it was just some people uh, playing the game. And then the guy who invented the game phoned me up and said, could we put this on the TV? And I said, no, uh, I think that'll be dull, but a comedy show about football that incorporated the game, that hasn't been done. I'll I'll go and talk to Frank about it. He was living in my house at the time. Uh, And then I think me and Frank just said, why don't we just do, (laughs) essentially out of laziness, to some extent, why don't we just put our life on the telly because our life consisted of quite a lot of sitting around uh, being friendly with each other watching football and having mates around so uh, you know it was just that really it was I, but it, I did think if you watch fantasy football there hasn't really been a show like it and, and there wasn't a show like it before you know uh, and so uh, yeah that comes from an instinct to want to do stuff that's different I mean it was part of a big uh, sort of a moment in the 1990s I guess and, and I don't know what you thought was the what what stands out for you in your memory? But for me, I remember um, this scene of is it before the England Germany semi final at Wembley, mm. and uh, the it's, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's Euro '96 semi, and the uh, and I think the BBC actually showed they just showed the crowd for yeah. several minutes before the game, and the crowd yeah. the, the everyone in Wembley Stadium is singing the song that you and and Frank Skinner did. Yeah. Uh, well, how how did this whole period of your life feel might be a well, general um, question it was, it was great in general i mean that particular thing three lions being sung at wembley which again you know it's a sort of strange accident of circumstance which is we were asked to write that song by ian Brody of the lightning seeds he said to us can you write the lyrics he'd been asked to write the england song by the fa he felt that he didn't represent football fans in england so very kindly he asked me and frank to write it we cheekily said, can we sing it as well? Which was particularly cheeky in my case because I can't sing. Uh, and then we did it. And then it was doing all right, the song, but it wasn't like a huge anthem. or We weren't aware of it being taken to the nation's hearts or anything. And then me and Frank are just at England-Scotland, which was the second game. And England, I don't know if you remember, but England hadn't been playing that well in that tournament. They'd drawn one all with Switzerland. They were, I think it was nil-nil with Scotland. It looked like it, it was going to be quite a dull tournament for England. And then, in the second half, uh, Seaman saved a penalty from Gary McAllister, um, and then uh, Gascoigne went up the other end and scored a brilliant goal, an amazing goal. Uh, And then when England went off, the mood was lifted, and the DJ at Wembley, who I have to thank for this, because he did it against the FA's advice, put on the song. And spontaneously, everyone in Wembley Stadium sung the entire song. (laughs) Now, I remember my manager saying to me afterwards, right, if you win an Oscar, which is very unlikely, but if you do, it won't be better than that. And I think he's probably right about that. Because the grassroots 
feel of that. The feel of like being, I don't know, just sort of something you did being celebrated by on a grassroots level rather than by an industry level, not by sort of the industry awarding you something, just by people saying, I'm going to sing this song. And also, I was incredibly happy anyway because England had played well and won, and the tournament was going to be good. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. You've got 80,000 people, and it's a genuine moment. They can't fake this, I suppose, so much. No, exactly. It's very very spontaneous, very genuine, very unfair. I mean, yeah, the surprise as well. I didn't know. The song had been out, but I didn't know that people knew the words. (laughs) The words weren't coming up on a screen. He just put the song on, and the whole of Wembley Stadium sung the song, every word. Unfortunately, Germany have long since commandeered that song. They have commandeered uh, it, but that's a German thing, I think. Impossi- was- possibly, yeah. Um, you mentioned Paul Gascoigne there, who we've unfortunately seen photos of in the last week or so. I don't know how well you knew him in those years. Um, the, the national election well. those. Did I, you not know? He, he came on Fantasy Football later, uh, you know, when, uh, later when the show was uh, itself not doing as well as it was, but certainly Paul wasn't doing so well. Um, He's a, you know, seemed like a lovely guy who completely lost his way and had a lot, a lot of damage uh, going on. Even by, even back then. Oh God, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, he came on the show quite, you know, like in two thousand and four, I think it was. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, he, yeah, he just seemed incredibly fragile. And it's a cliche, but you know, there must be some connection between Gascoigne's damage and his talent, in the same way that there must be with, you know, Maradona and. Uh, George Best. And, you think that's, uh, a, that's an interesting. Well, I mean, how, how do you how do you see that working? Well, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be true of everyone because you know there are because Messi doesn't seem to have enormous damage and he's a great player. But there's something about those players, I think, about Maradona and about George Best and uh, and Paul Gascoigne and I don't know that that it feels to me that that there's a wildness of imagination to the way they play that. As I say, this is a cliche, but I think it's true that it seems to be connected to uh, some kind of negative en- energy within them that's released through playing football. David, just uh, you have written a number of novels, and it seems to be an area, I don't know if you'd agree, it seems to remain largely resistant to football. The Damn United, obviously, was a pretty successful football novel a few years ago, but mm. you'd imagine the football landscape would provide quite a lot of fertile material. Mm. Is, is that not necessarily the case? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know. There's um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, the one who who wrote the Brian Clough book. Yeah, David Peace. David Peace. Yeah. yeah. Has he written a novel now about football or not? Uh, he wrong? he wrote one about Bill Shankly, but it was yeah, a, yeah. But that's just another very good book, no doubt. Yes, a novel is maybe the wrong way to use it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it was made into a film. Damn, the damned that's the damned United. The damned United. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I well, I can't answer that question about novels, but I've often thought the very few poor attempts to make football films demonstrate something about football, which is that there are some very successful American films about, say, baseball, aren't there? You know, there's Field of Dreams and The Natural and, and, and a few others that have done very well commercially. Um, and I think that's because American sport is quite like theatre in some ways, quite showbizy. Whereas I think football, again, despite all the showbiz elements that are attached to it, it has a reality football. It's very spontaneous sport. You can't really choreograph it in any way. And therefore, I think the theatre that happens within football itself is not replicable on the screen. When, it, when you try and do it, it looks ridiculous. And I wonder if 
that might still apply as well to the written word, maybe when you try and make it up about football. Yeah. This is my guess. I don't know. No, it could well be. It's, it's, as good a guess as any, I think. David, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. I do have to ask you, just lastly, uh, do you think Chelsea will win the Premier League this year? They look pretty good so far. I think they might. I think it's between them and, and Man City. I, I think... Uh, I think it's about Costa, actually. I think, because when I watched Costa in the World Cup, I thought, oh, God, he's rubbish, and he looks like a really dangerous bloke, and, and he might go off. But he's obviously, uh, you know, got a kind of really dogged ability to score goals, and I think that's what Chelsea needed, uh, because obviously it hadn't worked out with Torres and whatever. So I think the addition of someone who will score goals on a regular basis to the Chelsea setup suggests to me that that's the piece of the jigsaw we need. So I, I think we might. All right, well, David Bedell, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, I must yeah, say. Really and thanks so much it. for chatting to us. It's been Cheers, great. guys. Nice to talk. Brian, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on the new show. I think it's a good sound bike than what y'all got now. Mm. I, I'm still not you convinced how... My, you remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, <laughs> and I used to explain to her to try to get out of the trouble, and she looked at me and said, hmm, and I knew a butt whooping was coming at the house. <laughs> it's a kip. Look at it's it's like a lot of the monuments around around Ireland, GA monuments. It's a dump. You know, I just had occasion to uh, rewatch some of the '94 win over Italy, the one nothing win, the legendary win at the Meadowlands, and the way you guys took care of Baggio with McGraw, you know, just laying his body out all over the place. Oh my God, was it a battle? And a lot of our boys used to love the fact that we were going up there because just it was just a hammer match. The referee let absolutely everything go. And like, you as, it as well, Oshin, yeah? I absolutely hated it. I was about ten and a half stone at the time. <laughs> uh, I was basically just there to take free kicks because of the referee that we had. There was no free kicks. <laughs> See, I wrote a book called Arrivals decades and decades ago. Vincent grew up in Brooklyn, and he was very much into baseball, and he was a Dodger fan. So he read that chapter, because he wrote the book, and he calls me up, and he says, Jerry, I had to call you. You have written a great book. I said, Vincent, it's not a great book. It's a good book. He says, Jerry, it's a great book. I'm saying, no, it's a good book. Now, he's defending my book, and I'm attacking it, right? Yeah. My idea is, you got to win an argument with this guy. So he says to me, don't try to tell me it's a great, not a great book. I read it. I said, don't try to tell me it's not a good book. I wrote it. <laughs> really hope you enjoyed that chat with David Baddiel as much as we did. You you may have noticed her eagerness to talk about fantasy football there. When you're, when you're interviewing somebody who is known for something that happened a long time ago and has been hugely successful since then in various, various other uh, media-related fields... But sometimes they're not that necessarily eager to talk about the well, thing that... Oh, and it'd be rude not to mention it. I know, yeah. Like, and really you, really, you do want to get into it at some stage. But he seemed very enthusiastic and was really good company. So great to have him on. One of our favourite ever football books on this podcast is The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft. We've referenced this quite a few times over the years. Hopcraft himself died 10 years ago now. Uh, I was just having a look at this. It was November uh, 2004, so just over 10 years ago. But the foreword to his book is written by Michael Parkinson. These two men worked the sports beat on the same paper in Barnsley in the 1950s, which gave us all the excuse we needed, really, to speak to one of our all-time broadcasting heroes. And it was an absolute pleasure to interview. Here you go. I knew the place. Clough, but he called me Rabbi. Didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, I've we're, got. We're doing, we're doing lots for matches. But that, well, I can only love three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck.
stuff that he calls me Rebbe. Good luck. Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. All right, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the program Sir Michael Parkinson. Michael, thanks very much for talking to us, first of all. My pleasure. We wanted to chat about The Football Man, uh, one of the great, probably one of the greatest sports books of all time, written by an old colleague of yours, Arthur Hopcraft. Uh, when did you first come across, Arthur? I killed this author when I was a very young reporter in Barnsley, working for the Barnsley Chronicle. I was about, I suppose, 19, something like that. You'd be about the same age, and uh, he'd come down, from, come up from the south somewhere. I don't know. He, he, he was a kind of an exotic flower in Barnsley. He was Arthur. He used to wear sort of fawn clothes and things, and, and the sort of kerchief, which didn't go down well in this sort of whippets area of Barnsley at the time. Uh, and but he was a very fine writer, and we we had a, an instant friendship based on I think a mutual kind of attraction in the sense of you know both being sports writers or attempted to be. And so we, from that point on, our, our, our friendship developed until uh, the day died. Would you mind just taking us back a little further? Because I'm very interested, Michael, in knowing what fired your own interest in reporting. Why did you want to be a journalist in the first place? Well, I, I, I don't really know. I didn't mix to watching Humphrey Bogart films where the press <laughs> tag in his, in his trilby uh, and just constantly grabbing hold of the phone with his shoulder saying, hold the front page. That was very exciting, I thought. Uh, and then there was also the fact that my father was captain of the local cricket team and the local journalist used to come round on his rally bicycle every Monday morning to collect the sports results. I thought, that's hell of a job. I'd love to do that one day. Uh, and I did. Uh, I, I inherited the bicycle and started off in local papers collecting football results and stuff like that and doing the sort of local minutiae of village life in about five or six pit villages serviced by my newspaper, which then was called the South Yorkshire Times. So it, it, in those days, you could actually... Today, anybody who wanted to be what I did, what I became a journalist, uh, would have to go through all kinds of hoops and, and, and at the end of it, not even have a job. Uh, in my day, I could leave school at 16, as I did, and walk straight into an office and said, yeah, here I am, I'm an apprentice, tell me what to do. And that was a wonderful golden time for, for, for children who wanted to be a journalist. Am I correct in saying that you were in the rather privileged position of being able to report on some football matches that you actually played in? I had to nearly turn professional because of what I wrote about myself. <laughs> I would say, uh, goal-hungry Parky strikes again and uh, Magic Mike on form again and that sort of thing. At one point we had about six scouts from various clubs watching us and I did hear one man as he walked away say, well, he was crap. So then I thought, well, maybe, but uh, cricket was exactly the same. I'd, I'd write myself my own stories and things like that. So I became a kind of one-man uh, PR unit for myself, and, and it, it kind of worked because eventually I got to play for Barnsley with Geoffrey Boycott and Dickie Bird and, and Trad Trials for Yorkshire and, and played for Hampshire Club Ground when I was in the Army doing my national service. So the cricket thing was fine. All my football stuff was fantasy. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the, the cricket, I know your father would have been would have instilled that love of cricket in you and presumably football from a young age also. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we went in those days, of course, you have to... I sound like I'm talking about prehistoric times. I mean, I used to travel travel to a football, a Barsi Barsi play. If I got the early bus... I got the same bus as our centre-half. <laughs> he used to get on at Montbreton with his boots around his head and his pit mug still on. You know, I mean, my dad worked with half the bars of the team at Grand Thorpe Colliery. 
you know, they're all on other jobs. They all kind of represented the place where you lived. I mean, if you came to play football for Barnsley, at Barnsley, against Barnsley, what you knew for certain was you were meeting a team of 11 pitmen, 11 colliers, would most likely kick the crap out of you. Uh, and, and that was true of any area in Britain. They, they were distinguished by the occupation that they, was there at the time. They were uh, distinguished by the, the kind of job they did. I mean, Barnsley, you're playing against 11 miners. That was the fact of the matter. All of whom worked in local pits, and, and there were very few exceptions. So it was a kind of communal thing. You know, it was... Our, our love of the of the of the game was was due to the fact that it was local pride. They weren't bought in players, the odd Scots guy or something like that. But you know they were all of a kind, and and that's what made it really sort of uh, special. I think. Yeah, it's very interesting because the football man which Hopcraft wrote it came out originally in 1968, and I think that's trying to capture maybe a change in uh, the relationship between football and and. The community, because You're exactly right. yeah, and, yeah. and George George was the symbol of that change. I mean, George was these you trace George's lineage back. He was the first star footballer, the sense of being the first glamour footballer. I mean, nobody wore their hair like George before George appeared on the scene. Uh, nobody looked like George. I mean, he looked like Elizabeth Taylor, for God's sake. Uh, he played fo- football like a dream. I mean, George changed everything. The problem was, for George, was that being the pathfinder, there was nobody there to look after him. So that by the time people understood, Busby particularly, had understood what had happened to George, the kind of fifth beetle that he'd become, it was already too late, and that George was set on his ways, drinking himself to death, basically. It was a great tragedy from that point of view. But in the short time that he was a player, and I think he retired when he was 27, something like that, in that time, he transformed football as a game and transformed it from sport to show business, basically. And all the footballers today who earn these huge wages should look at George and understand that he was the man who changed it all for them. And yet, the most he ever earned from Manchester United Football Club was £200 a week. Yeah, it's incredible, really. It really is. And this is... I guess part of the magic of the book. I mean, even the profile of George Best, which is probably the most famous part of the football man, he compares, Hopcraft compares the best of 1965 when he first really encountered him to the best of only two or three years later. And he compares George the precocious kid had become Georgie the public figure. Now, that's very poignant even hearing that now. I guess it was a striking piece of writing at the time. It was, and I think the favourite line or the favourite description of, of the book, and I, it's been a while since I've read it, uh, and I'm now quoting really from him, but there's a marvellous moment where he travels with George in the car from Manchester United's car park, and George signs autographs and puts a sweet in his mouth, uh, you know, uh, which, which is a kind of a, a sort of symbol of a childish thing. And that's what he was. He was a kid, for God's sake, you know, 17, 18, whatever he was, who liked bowl sweets. And, and, and on that sort of accessibility, so they might have been in a Jaguar, bought himself a Jag as a symbol of his newfound wealth, 200 quid a week. But on the other hand, he was still belonged to, to the audience, to the crowd. Now, footballers nowadays sweep out of stadia in, in, in cars with blackened windows, you know, and there's no approach to them at all. They're as remote as, as mountain gods. Uh, and, and yet George is accessible and made himself accessible, particularly to the, to the female population. Yeah. 
and I think that's begun to be captured in the football. Man. Was was football written about much in this intellectual manner in the late nineteen sixties? Well, it was it was written in in the sense of, of being part of a cohesive, if you like, cohesive uh, pattern of, of of life in a community. Uh, it had a different function in those days. It, as I said, it was it was it was part of the community, and the people who played w- represented that community. You weren't likely to have many. Um, uh, old Etonians or Herovians playing for Barnsley or indeed people who beat school. No, I don't mean that. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was different. It was, yeah. it was, you know, they were, they were working class people, proper working class people. And they knew about hardship and they knew about strikes and they knew about all that. And they expected to see from, from their community team the same spirit and attitude that had got them through the bad years as well that sense of communal spirit and all those things. So it, it was, there, there were, I mean, there, there, were, there always have been, so the, the, the slightly left-leaning uh, commentators who've always written about that. Arthur was the first, well, it wasn't the first, I mean, there were several at that time, but, but Arthur pinpointed that, that change about to, 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 to happen to the communities. Uh, and I think, like, like me, what comes through in the book is, is a kind of sense of loss, uh, not pure nostalgia, it's a sense of, of deprivation of, of something that's important with the left community. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a line in it, and I'm interested to know whether what type of writer is able to write a book like this. He says, I've tried to salute football while remaining as watchful for its blemishes as affection allows. Yeah. So you mentioned nostalgia there, and I think even at the time, it seems like Hopcraft was wary of being too nostalgic about the 30s and, and the 40s and the 50s. He He was trying to be quite real about how football was at, at yes, that point. If, you, if you'd lived through the change, then, then it's impossible not to make comparisons. That's the point. And we can bore for Britain. Uh, Arthur and I could about going on about this and often did. But it was important. And, and I think, think it's the old saying about you had to be there to understand what we were talking about, basically. Uh, and it was not to say that we, we didn't appreciate what happened to the modern game. Of course we did. I mean, you know, the changes were some of them were wonderful with stadia, all that sort of thing. The, the glamour of it all and the television coverage, accessibility, all those things. But what you what is missing was was essentially not the it was the it was the soul of it basically. It changed it, it changed its nature. What sort of a working relationship did you have, Michael, with uh, Arthur Hopcraft at that time? You said you were a young a young writer, a young journalist. Was it all very friendly or was there a competitive element? Yeah, well, we we used to be, be very, very competitive, uh, in the sense that, you know, we go off to a football match and we we try to to outright each other, and, uh, and it was uh, it, it got quite uh, sort of curious at times. The the, the sort of uh, the uh, competition between us, uh, and while we were maintaining a, a very close friendship, which is what we had. Arthur left uh, Barnsley. There was some story that uh, he'd been attracted to a, a girl who was the <laughs> daughter of a senior police officer. And uh, the police officer disapproved of us, uh, of, 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 the, of a, his daughter's choice and boyfriend right. um, came around and said to Arthur, it might be as well if you left town. So I think he went up <laughs> to the northeast for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time I saw him, I, I was in a sense responsible for it. And I'm, I'm very proud. I was working at Granada Television as a producer and I remembered Arthur. And, uh, and I thought, you know, because he was such a fine writer, we should have him at Granada. So we persuaded him to come down. 
And of course, from that point on, a new life opened for Arthur because that was the time when he met George, when he became, he started writing football for the Observer as well. And also the time when he started writing, first of all, some very fine plays, and then, of course, became the, the John Le Carre go to man for the TV adaptations, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, particularly. Yeah, that's interesting. So it was around that time. That, so you gave him uh, this role within Granada, and that's when his yeah, that's writing I introduced first. him to Granada, and that's that's when he started. He started as a researcher on on the program I was producing, and then he, he moved across to to do to start writing. I think he wrote Coronation Street for a while. I think there's some very fine writers, Jack Rosenthal, there at the same time writing. So that's how he started, and he was very happy doing that. He kind of found a. He found a new life uh, when in, in, in writing adaptations and or, or even straightforward plays. He was a very, very fine dramatist in a sense, which he discovered because of that move to Granada. Yeah, you made the point in the forward to the 2006 edition of The Football Man that the book in no way embraces all his talents as a writer, yet it's clearly an outstanding example of his gifts as a journalist. That's so right. I mean, it, it, a lot of people like Arthur, you know, get... get, get uh, kind of tagged with the thing about being a sports, just a sports writer. Well, I mean, two things there. I mean, some of the best writing in the newspaper, in my view, has always been on the back pages. There's some very, think of Hugh McIlvenny now. I mean, you can't find in the time, in the uh, Sunday Times a better writer than McIlvenny, no matter what people are writing about. So there's always been that tradition. And Arthur was, was, was part of that, but it kind of defined him for a while, and then he got away from it and became, you know, this, this fine all-round writer. The same time became very reclusive. Um, he always was. He always favoured his own companies, and he wasn't a gregarious man at all. He was a quiet man who kept to himself. Had a few, an intimate, if you like, group of friends who, 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 who cared for him. Uh, a lot of women who loved him, and uh, of course, sexually, he was never quite sure what he was. He once said he tried both, and whispered, "All more go away." Uh, so he was a reclusive kind of man, uh, and and when he, when he died, uh, I spoke at his memorial service, but along with John Le Carre, who was notoriously shy of you know appearing in public, but made a wonderful speech about after saying that he thought that uh, he was the best adapter of his work that he'd ever ever worked with. Yeah, wonderful tribute. I'm interested, Michael, in what you said there about sports writing, about the quality of sports writing, because it sometimes can, I guess, I, I don't know if you would agree, but um, there's an element, I think that the, the sports department has been known as the toy department in newspapers over yeah, the years. That's right. It used to be called that, the toy department. Yeah, well, that's by, from people who don't know A, writers, and don't know the significance of sport. The distortion nowadays of, 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 of sport is that people talk of it in terms of war and famine and God knows what else, you know. And in fact, of course, it's nothing like that at all. I mean, the, the relevance of sport is that it's irrelevant, except to actually persuade us that there's a world beyond the dreadful world we live in. If you look at the newspapers now, look what's happening in the Middle East and all over, then you'd be actually likely to think that the entire world was was an appalling place to live in, and you might be right, except that there's an alternative when we go to sport to actually escape for a while from the real world and live in a fantasy world. That's what Arthur understood with Best. I mean, Best's best great gift, was he, he, he translated this extraordinary uh, talent that he had into a kind of a, a, a madcap sort of fantasy, which we all got involved in, which got nothing to do with the real world, nothing to do with war, famine, anything important like that. It was entertainment. And that's that's the genius of sport. It's to persuade us that you know that things as irrelevant to sport is only relevant because it actually takes our mind off what is important, 
which is war and famine and death and all that sort of thing. It sounds like something you've never lost your passion for then, Michael. As you said, you were, well, you were banging in all those goals playing as a youth in Barnsley. <laughs> and, and genuinely, you, as you said, you were close to a cricket, a professional cricket career. So it seems like a love that has stayed with you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You, you can't ignore it once you've been bitten by the bug. But the important thing is to put, assess it properly, is to put it in its proper proper place. You know, It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. It can also be a little bit ridiculous, as you said there. There's a, a story you mentioned in the foreword, which I referenced earlier on, um, about your writing in the Barnsley Chronicle at that stage. You were writing about a footballer called, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Roy Cooling for Barnsley. Roy you, Cooling, yeah, yeah you tr- the, the inter- intellectual, yeah. You, is, <laughs> what, what, what was the line? I do, yes, I use a line. That's what Arthur and I were trying to, to... I said, yes, that's right. I said of Roy Cooling that uh, he had the looks of a, of a young Scott Fitzgerald. And because because the, the Arthur and I were constantly trying to get in references, we should battle the subs on the Barnsley Chronicle. And uh, I put this in and waited for Arthur to call me. He said, "That's great, got Scott Fitzgerald in." And I looked at the paper and it said uh, he had the looks of a Scott of the Antarctic. And, uh, so the Barnsley decided that the poor people of Barnsley had no idea who Fitzgerald was, but Scott of the Antarctic was all of it. He looked nothing like Scott of the Antarctic, dressed or undressed. So, uh, but yeah, so, and Arthur would try and get things in, you know, as, as Andre Guide once said, and all this sort of thing, you know. So we had a great fun from that point of view. We were, we were, we were firm friends, as much as, any, as much as Arthur would allow a friendship, in a sense. He, he was, as I said, a contained man, and, and, and happy in his own company. And particularly when he started writing full-time plays and things, adaptations, uh, he became virtually... Uh, um, uh, he disappeared basically, yeah. and uh, and I the next I I heard of him I would get uh, calls from various people sort of looking after him when he became ill, and and then then he died and 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 that was it and it was, it was very sad and a great loss but I think he leaves behind in a book like the um, the football man he leaves behind a part of himself it's not all of himself he's much more rounded character than that. But it's enough to, to, to actually indicate that, you know, uh, football writing can have great literary potential and it can be beautifully written and humorously written and, uh, and, and he did it better than most. I think people might be quite stunned by the prescience of some of what he wrote also. He calls towards the end of the book, he, he sets out some of the trends at, the, at that point in football and where they might lead and he calls for the redesign of terraces because there are safety issues. He talks, he says there should be full-time referees. He also says there'll be a, a, a breakaway of a Premier League from the Football League. This is absolutely incredible that he could, um, I mean, it seems like he's almost psychic at times. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if you could claim that again, but no, he, he, had, he had an instinct for it, that's what he had, he had a feel for it, for the real heart of it, you know, not the superficiality of it, but for the, what, what was really important. And, it's an, and, and from that point of view, it's an important book, and it, it will stand alone as, as long as people watch football. Are, are you... Um how do you view football now, Michael, with the Premier League as it is and the machine of the Champions League? You've got nothing to do with me. That's the problem. I, that's exactly going back to what I was saying earlier. I, I feel I watch it. I mean, I'm some, sometimes I admire it. I'm excited by what I see. There's some fabulous players. But it doesn't mean anything to me. And, and the gap between the Premier League now and the rest of football is, is as huge as it's ever been, or more than it's ever been. And, and it, 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 
the, the Premier League swamps and, and overwhelms all other teams, all other considerations, to the point where it's very difficult if you support a team like Barnsley, like I do, to actually feel the same way about it because it's so unfair, the entire business now. You know, the Premier League clubs, the top four clubs, five clubs, let us say, totally dominating because of their financial clout in the market, owned by foreigners. You know, the majority of players are foreigners. You know, where are the Normantons, the Skinner Normantons of my youth? You know, those people used to be. I mean, the thing about, this is the worst thing about modern football. Arthur and I used to talk about this, and we would agree on it. If we, Arthur and I, were writing nowadays, we could not write the way we did about football. Just, what we did. Just because, because of the way it's no, moved there's on, no yeah. humor in it, for one thing. You know, and, and there's, there's nothing that's characterful that characterizes the Brits as such, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't care about Croatians and, you know, <laughs> people from wherever they might be from. They've got nothing to do with me. I can admire their courage, their, their style, whatever. But I don't feel an affinity with them at all. And when you watch the England football team play, then you understand what I'm talking about. Would you say that's the same with uh, even television interviews? Is it difficult to get the the sports stars with the type of accessibility maybe that you would have that you would have had for many years well there is remotest people from planet zog you know and so it's the people who run football i mean harry redknapp had a, a, a quote the other day about he being criticized for signing real ferdinand and he said he's only on 35 grand a week that won't change his life well i mean the average wage of a person is 27,000 quid Here's a guy, or with one leg, end of his career, getting 35 grand a week. And Harry thinks, well, that's not a, not a size chicken feed. And of course, he's right compared to 250,000 quid a week, absurd, sometimes tax paid. I mean, what have they got to do with me and, and my youth and my football and the core of me? Nothing. Is there anything know? that could have been done over the years, do you think, to stem that tide? Or was it just the inevitable... No, co- no it's, you, you, you can't cure greed, you can't venal managers and uh, players and, and agents. Uh, agents are maybe the most corrupting influence in the game. Uh, and it's a game that's lost control. Of, of, it doesn't have a moral structure at all. Look at Blatter. Look at what's happening at the top most level of football. Are you telling me that that's straight, that's representative of the kind of community and the kind of people you want to deal with? Oh, come on. Yeah. Is it, is it strictly limited to football, what you're talking about here? Because I saw your interview with Ian Thorpe a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, which was fascinating, I thought. Is there still hope for some sports people that they can be interesting outside of... Well, there's, the, always, the, there's always hope that the, 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 great, the great stars will transcend all of this, maybe. But, but all they do is, is, if you watch now, the, I don't know, Messi or whatever, you're lifted up, lifted for, for a moment or two, and you're transported to another world, in a sense. Uh, but when you come back to Earth again, it's 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 a fairly sort of what's the word? It's, it's a fairly corrupt base from which they're operating, and one that's, that's really I'm really detached from. Now it may be just no man talking about that, but I mean, you know, as I said to you earlier, Arthur and I were brought up in a generation, a different generation altogether. And the important thing about that is is that we we grow up with a sense of humour about sport, with a sense of its community value of all that those things, with a sense of accessibility you know, travelling to, to the same bus to the ground as the centre up and all that sort of thing. And we, if we swapped that, if we'd been born in this, there'd be no humour in our writing, no, no sense of fun in our writing. And that's the problem today, is that's what's lacking. Okay. It's difficult, it's difficult. 
I mean, you, you mustn't take it too seriously. You can satirize what's happening today, but you can't. You can't have. You can't report it and make it seem funny and part of the human condition. Well, Michael, it's been absolutely fascinating. I have to say, listening to your insight and all of that. And it's also great to hear you sound so healthy. It was around this time last year that <laughs> you announced that you had prostate cancer, but you've recovered well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it is a recovery uh, and it's a slow process. But uh, yes, I'm, I've got uh, hopefully got rid of that, that cancer. And uh, now it's a question of surviving the uh, the results of the, of the treatment, the chemotherapy. And that's sort of not the chemotherapy, but the radiotherapy in my case. Uh, but that's what you have to learn to adjust to. But at present, everything's going fine. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, listen, it's been um, absolutely superb having you on. I'm sure everyone's enjoyed listening to you. And thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, okay, Owen. Thanks. Take care, Paul. That was a legendary Michael Parkinson speaking to us earlier in the year about his uh, sports writing career, largely, including some slightly embellished accounts of his goal-scoring ex- exploits on the field. Uh, Parky, Parky's <laughs> hat-tricks uh, being quite a Parky regular goal feature. route. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it was a privileged position that uh, he found himself in there and he abused that position for uh, all that it was worth. So well played, hugely successful. I've since picked up a book of his, uh, I've just showed it to you there again, from the 90s, Sporting Profiles, which is a collection of his articles taken from the Daily Telegraph. My interest in the sports writing in his later sports writing was peaked having chatted to him uh, earlier in the year and the, the the breadth of his own career can be seen in the people who are profiled here Nat Lofthouse and Nassim Hamed Murph do not appear regularly in print anywhere else yeah. besides in Michael <laughs> quite an anthology. Yeah, uh, sporting profiles uh, I'll give you a, a read of that kind of I haven't even got a chance to read it myself but I, yeah. I, say, I seem to remember Richard Burton once uh, you know slagged off Michael Parkinson uh, suggested he could, should have stuck with the journalism that was his integrity. But oh no, seduced by the bright lights, seduced by the, the glamour of the television studio, betrayed your talent mm. and all this sort that of stuff. That was constantly thrown at Parkinson. He re- references it quite really? a lot in the book. It was, he was seen as having sold out essentially, gone to exactly that, gone to the bright lights of television rather than but I mean, honing I, his crap <laughs> writing. <laughs> who had he been, who had been working for? Exactly. You know, a, 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 a regional newspaper in the north of England. When um, he moved on, he had been working for the Guardian. I think it was the Manchester Guardian at the time. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, writing writing profiles of uh, people for a newspaper is a noble craft, certainly. But is it necessarily that much more noble than interviewing them on television? I'm not convinced. <laughs> That's it from us for the day. We will uh, talk to you again. We will talk to you again on Monday. Got to slow the pace down sometimes, Murph. Just slow it down a little bit. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Owen. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. And a happy new year once again. We'll talk to you again on Monday. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.